So, Fred, you missed it. I was just testing out audio that I can just insert in, like so recall roundup intro, Tau intro, and the show intro. You guys ready for it? Because I got a new show intro. Here we go. Ooh. You're listening to There Auto Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I like it. It gets a little loud there at the end, but but hey, hey, listeners, <laughs> welcome to season two. We'll call it season two because, you know, this is episode 53, but, you know, you don't have to catch up on all 52 episodes it's not like lost um i mean it is like lost in that we're making it up as we go along uh that's an old reference isn't it yeah well it's you know it's 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 like one of the sitcoms where you can just catch any episode and you're and you're caught up to speed you don't have to follow the plot from day one <laughs> but the plot is pretty much the same here um each let's start off with a our continuing long story about driverless cars waymo cruise and san francisco so as we've mentioned in the past uh voters residents of places like san francisco and seattle washington want control over how cars are run in their city i know it's naive this idea of democracy but it's it's adorable but states like california are like nope We're going to override what you want to do in your municipalities. Washington, same thing. Good luck. But now there was a vote scheduled by the California Public Utilities Commission that would allow unlimited expansion of GM Cruise and Waymo robot taxis on public streets. But this has been postponed to further review. And historically, this is just something that just happens and it goes through. No one notices it. But uh, Waymo has uh, been causing issues with the police. GM Cruise has been blocking fire trucks and now people are getting a little uh, annoyed with it including the um the fire chief of san francisco who says uh uh she that they've loved the fire department of san francisco since january 1st has logged at least 39 robo taxi incident reports Ugh. so well anthony i can you explain to me why it's a bad idea for uncrewed vehicles to be blocking fire trucks because it doesn't seem to be obvious to everybody. Oh, let's see. Got a fire going along. This robo taxi rolls over my fire hose, blocks the flow of water there, and now we can't move it out of the way. There's no one to talk to. There's no one to signal. There's no international sign language for, get your vehicle off my fire hose. That's one reason. So that's generally generally bad performance on the part of the cruise vehicle. Is that well, I think Fair it's poor. De- I think it's poor design on the building codes in San Francisco. Why haven't they made all their buildings out of asbestos? It won't burn. Well, that's true. That would save a lot, wouldn't it? If they just made all the buildings fireproof, yeah, and earthquake proof. Yeah, I mean, it's their fault for design. They designed a system that requires a fire department. <laughs> You're just planning for failure right there. That's planned obsolescence, isn't it? They're going to burn down. <laughs> Absolutely, Michael. So they've uh, they've delayed a vote on this. It, it appears because there's been some significant public 
opposition to the expansion of the services that Cruz and Waymo are attempting to offer there. Um, this is about two weeks, I believe, after the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Authority. Am I getting that right? SFMTA. Um kind of pushed back on and and put out a, a document, you know, based on their data saying that cruise is about 6.3 times more dangerous than a human driver. And that basically, you know, they, they, they may have met the requirements in California to get a learner's permit, but they haven't gotten to where they could get an actual driver's license, which as we all know, even bad drivers get often. So it, it's certainly not a glowing review and it's, it's, you know, the the Public Utilities Commission in California is in charge of this process, um, and San Francisco has to go to them and to the state to get things done on its streets, which is problematic. And I think we referred to it last week in speaking about how, you know, the, the AV industry and their lobby are, are trying to basically make states, cities, and the federal government powerless all at the same time um through through all types of preemption and other legal maneuvers while continuing to tout these benefits of these vehicles that we we don't see um for the disabled and for other communities yet and for the firefighter community they are causing a lot of problems um i think waymo even ran over a dog a couple of weeks ago Uh so it's 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 just continuing to be rolled out without really any public data being provided to show that these vehicles are safe. Now we've talked about how Waymo is putting out data on crashes and incidents and is doing a really good job of that. What it appears they're missing is how their vehicles are affecting traffic when they go into, you know, what we've called a, um, well, a state of confusion or an, an existential crisis um, where they just can't figure out what to do and they stop in the middle of the road and how that affects everyone around them. Um, While they might not be, you know, running over and killing humans or causing massive injuries yet, they're not really focused on the other impacts that they're having on the streets of San Francisco, which we've talked about ad nauseum, you know, and, and, and the, chief among those appear to be some of the firefighters complaints because they're the ones responding to accident scenes plus they're the ones who when they respond to house fires are having their hoses and their operations threatened by vehicles without a driver in them um so we are firmly on the side of local authorities being able to determine what types of vehicles are able to operate on their streets, particularly in situations like this, where there are traffic and safety consequences. Michael, has anybody ever, let me just ask, has anybody ever shown that any individual human being anywhere has ever saved time, money, or hazard by using a self-driving vehicle? I can't imagine that data is even available if it exists, and I don't think it does. And he really furred his brow when answering that. So he gave it some thought. <laughs> I, I telegraph when I'm actually using my brain. That's good. <laughs> we used to, we used to, in the old days, you used to call that vaporware. Anthony, is vaporware <laughs> still something that's uh, a current term or is that moved on? Vaporware is, is definitely still a thing. But Michael, Waymo says that it was disappointed by the commission's delay and that its data to date has shown no collisions involving pedestrians or cyclists. We're going to ignore city buses, other vehicles, 
Yeah, I mean, herbs. I think that's the tunnel vision that they're referring to the the SFMTA is or SMFT SFMTA. I'll get it right one day. That's what they're referring to. They're saying, well, yeah, you're focused on, you know, you're doing a, you're doing good on the safety side of the actual vehicle operating and not hitting things. But what you're not really getting right is when the vehicle can't operate and is blocking traffic, blocking emergency vehicles, you know, things like where the vehicle is dropping off passengers and a number of other issues that that show that they're there's you know, there's still a long way to go. While these vehicles might be op able to operate safely and under, under limited circumstances on city streets, they're not quite doing it in a way that's helping the city. They're creating more congestion and more problems. And so inevitably, I think we all need to ask, what's the point? You know, and we've asked this before, what's the point of having these things on the roads in your city if they're only causing problems? Um, and you're basically becoming a test ground and you're absorbing some of the um negatives of and of, of of the rollout of these vehicles and you're not getting anything in return um so it's you know i think it's gonna it's gonna end up costing san francisco more money to have these vehicles in its city so they need to see some corresponding benefits i don't think they're getting that yet well, it's interesting because GM Cruise, they mentioned how a bunch of disability rights groups have sent letters in support. And so I asked a, a friend of mine who's blind about this. I said, wouldn't it make more sense that you'd actually have a driver there to help you if you need in and out? I mean, uh, make sure you're getting to the door and whatnot. And what he said to me was was interesting. He said it's about having kind of uh, not having to rely on other people. He said, so the dream is that that I could own a vehicle like this, not as a taxi service, but that one day I could own a vehicle like this and I can have independence and get around without having to rely on others. Um, but he freely admits that this future probably will never occur. Um, so it's they're kind of playing this fictitious straw man that maybe, hey, in the future, in 20, where everything will be better, in 20, 30 years when we have all of this figured out, and that it's cheap enough for you to actually own these vehicles, that it's a good thing. Whereas ignoring the reality of today, whereas, you know, the cars will threaten the police. I mean, it's it's tough. And, and you know, that is the number one thing I hear from uh, when, I, when when we read the comments from the groups representing uh blind the blind they say that their independence is, is is really the number one thing for them they don't want to have to rely on another driver or you know if you're like me and you're you, you have a streak of uh you're a little misanthrope uh <laughs> you won't you want your your time to yourself and and you know i can see where where that's that's super important to people and you know so i get it but yes like you i i just can't I, first of all from the ownership perspective i don't know that ownership of these things is ever truly going to be possible. We'll see the, the robo taxi idea. Maybe um, that's certainly what, you know, everyone's pushing from Tesla on up, but uh, it's going to be a long time. Um, right. Particularly if they can't resolve some of these human vehicle problem interactions with firefighters and, and, and that type of thing, because 
putting this system into play on the streets where we're already having problems. We already have a pedestrian crisis. We already having so many different transportation issues. AVs are not solving them right now. There, there's very little benefit and a lot of drawbacks to having them on the road at this moment. And, you know, I, I think as they roll out into more cities, you're going to see more locals come out like this. And hopefully um, we listen to the people and not to the billions of dollars in corporate money that's funding these experiments. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. I mean, I just think of the example, I think it was Waymo a couple of weeks ago. We talked about where the reporter tried to use it and it wouldn't drop him off at his location. It slowed down, pulled over and then sped off to some other location. I mean, how frightening would that be? Um, you know, especially, if, you know, you have any sort of disability, like you're trying to get out. Nah, you're moving. But, you know, hey, everything will be better and these cars make the world safer. Can you smell that sarcasm, listener? Because if you can, you should go to autosafety.org and donate, and we'll send you whole packets of sarcasm. Actually, we're not going to send you anything. Um, it's you know, it's a charity. It's a, it's a nonprofit charity. Okay, you're making it. You get some sort of tax benefit. I'm not a tax lawyer or an accountant. I don't know how it works. But you should donate, and then we'll continue with the conversation about how the roads are becoming very dangerous for pedestrians. America was a dangerous place to be a pedestrian in 2022. Preliminary data analyzed by the Governor's Highway Safety Association. Everyone's got their own safety association. Found that 7,508 pedestrians were killed in traffic crashes last year. The highest numbers of deaths since 1981. Uh, amazing. And the thing is, it points out that most of these deaths were the, the massive increase has been in states Arizona, Virginia, Oregon, Tennessee, Wisconsin. But streets that surprisingly have gotten safer are D.C., Montana, which Montana, I don't even think it has a speed limit, New York, uh, New Jersey of all places. Um, it's it's amazing. And we've talked about this, about how pedestrians are people too. Yeah, there's, there's just so many issues involved here. Um, you know, we, we've talked about the threat to pedestrians from the heavier vehicles from the larger uh in stature vehicles there are just dozens of issues behind this um you know we started we've started to see a lot of distraction causing these incidents both you know both by drivers and by pedestrians just like we see and and pedestrian incidents we see a lot of inebriated or drunk drivers and there are also inebriated pedestrians um i've seen you know blame a lot of blame cast towards infrastructure as part of the problem you know road designs uh streets lacking sidewalks proper places to cross and there are a lot of technological solutions there that state highway departments and cities can put in place to solve some of these issues and there are either funding issues or, you know, frankly, motivational or, or just a desire to get these type of things done is a problem in some states. So there are many, many problems here that are causing this issue uh, with pedestrians. And, you know, we have to attack every one of them. I mean, one of those issues is, you know, making sure that vehicles don't continue to grow in stature so much that, you know, what is a 30 mile per, per hour collision now killing a pedestrian doesn't become 20 because the weight of the vehicles have increased so much. So 
it's you know it's a disaster it's a crisis and it's ongoing and the numbers are going up every year and they're going up in relation to the overall total of fatalities on our roads we have had increase in the last few years in fatalities on our roads but the increase there hasn't been nearly as significant as what we've seen uh in in the area of pedestrians being killed i believe there's been a like a 75 percent rise in the last decade or so in the number of pedestrians killed which is enormous and you know it it you know, it strikes me that we should be able to find some solutions to this by, you know, just seeing what what's happened since in the last 10 years. And obviously, you know, distracted driving, heavy vehicles have become a bigger problem. We've also seen, um, you know, there there's certain places where this tends to happen too. like you mentioned, Oregon, there's, you know, a staggeringly large number of the pedestrians that are struck in, in Oregon are homeless or unhoused people who you know are living on the streets and you know it makes sense that they might be exposed to more risk but that's a huge problem as well addressing things you know you wouldn't think of it this way but addressing you know a, a crisis like homelessness can impact the number of pedestrians that are uh killed each year so there really are a lot of issues here that can that can and should be resolved um if only we have the political will to do it Oh. Fundamentally, most of the people are being killed at night and by cars that are going too fast and uh, and or drunk drivers. So those are the, the major factors that I saw in there, Michael. You know, short term, what needs to happen is the speeding cars need to be kept separate from the pedestrians. And that's the fundamental perspective behind the, the zero fatality initiatives that are going on around the world. Um, that requires investment in structures and investment by the public in separating the speeding vehicles from the pedestrians. Uh, one, one part of that is to make sure the cars go slower with various kinds of construction, speed bumps, speed humps, what have you. But longer term, you're exactly right. The, the long-term solution is for people's behavior to change, particularly people who have no choice but to be on the streets and, uh, you know, getting them away from the vehicles and getting the vehicles to slow down so that they're not an inherent hazard to the people on the street. That's it may be a big ask, but I think this is coupled with the whole idea of energy efficiency, reducing carbon footprints, basically redesigning transportation systems in some respects, so that people use their cars less, use them more efficiently, and don't use them in areas that threaten human beings. So where does that limit car use to? <laughs> where I'm sorry, what? Where where does that limit car use to? So if it's well, not going to threaten humans anywhere. So limited limited access highways are relatively safe. There's very few pedestrian accidents and collisions on uh, limited access highways. There are uh, very few pedestrian accidents on streets where vehicles are prohibited. Uh, you know, a lot of cities now are moving towards areas where pedestrians are the focus and the vehicles are the exception. You can you can do that with appropriate means for having people park their cars, use various other kinds of public ways to get into the city, uh, walking, bicycles, moving sidewalks, who knows? There's a lot of ways of doing that. 
Uh, it's happening in Europe. Copenhagen is a good example. Amsterdam, Rotterdam. I understand all those cities have got very, very low pedestrian deaths. And uh, yet life continues for the people who own cars. So I, I think there are ways to do it, Anthony. But, you know, it needs the will and it needs the public commitment. I'm seeing it in my own neighborhood where they've closed off entire streets and it's just this is all pedestrian thoroughfare now. I've actually contacted the New York City Department of Transportation and asked for a speed hump right outside my window because there's a traffic light there and and they uh, it's not a traffic light. It's the starting line of a drag race every five minutes. It is literally a drag race and it's not a far race they've raced to basically to to the where the street goes from two lanes to one lanes to get onto a highway oh that's and, one of those yeah yeah and the city has written back and they're like no we've we've done a study it's not needed and i'm like what i've done a study too i hear people crash their cars constantly here but anyway. i think you just want to pick up on the extra catalytic converters that fall on the ground when they hit them too fast right hey look platinum it's the future uh, so in this article that we're linking to, this is uh, this is, I think, kind of what we've been talking about. But uh, quoting from it, even before electrification, the weight of passenger vehicles has been rising. In 1980, the average weight of a car was about three thousand two hundred pounds. Now it is four thousand two hundred pounds, just like the average weight of an American. Uh, an increase of thirty one percent. And over the past two decades, the average weight of a picket pickup truck rose by twenty four percent. Studies show that for every 1,000 pound increase in vehicle weight, there is a 46% increase in motorist fatalities. Oh my God. So you got to add in the, the car gained 1,000 pounds. The driver well, yeah, and that was, that was, those are ice vehicles. That's pre electrification. So right, right now we're dropping another 1,500 or 2,000 pounds in the heavier vehicles and, you know, a few hundred, if not a thousand, in a lot of other vehicles. So those rates went up slowly over time there. Now they're going to go up even quicker. But I mean, physics, is it a real thing or is it just a myth? Well, physics is a real thing. Yeah. And, you know, the fundamental physics are that the lighter object in a collision is going to suffer a disproportionate amount. And, um, you know, getting hit by a train at 60 miles an hour is probably worse than getting hit by a car at 60 miles an hour. Neither one's good. But I think the, the key is that some of this analysis done so far in the research is that fatalities occur most often when a vehicle speed exceeds 25 miles per hour isn't that right yes you've done that, you've done that that's, work that's that's one of the reasons why you see so many more crashes uh pedestrian fatalities on arterial roads where you have a, a you know stop lights and crossings but you also have speed limits of 40 plus miles per hour all right so you know the the question is would somebody be more injured by a heavier vehicle at 25 miles per hour than they are by a lighter vehicle at 25 miles per hour. I'm not sure that that study's been done. I think that the statistics you were talking about are correlation rather than causality. Yeah. And it's hard so, to do yeah. that because vehicles have different shapes that impact pedestrians in different ways, right? Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. And happily, uh, NHTSA is starting to consider including pedestrian protection in the NCAP ratings. So that's good. That's that's happening in parallel. But right. really, there there's no substitute from keeping vulnerable road users away from speeding cars. That's, you know, that's the fundamental 
change that's got to take place. Hmm. So let's tie these two subjects together. We did uh, self-driving cars. We did road safety. And let's pull them all together with this uh, opinion piece from the Washington Post talking about how Elon Musk likes to claim that his cars running autopilot are unequivocally safer. Yet, I'm not going to show you the data. Quoting yeah, from this article, a post-investigation reveals the number of deaths and serious injuries associated with Tesla's driver assistant technology is greater than previously reported. <gasps> the most recent accounting by NHTSA includes 736 crashes since 2019, at least 17 of them fatal. Oh, my God. Well, that, you know, speaking of a correlation and that causality, those those numbers are from the standing general order, which is not a direct connection from the driver assistance t- Tesla's reporting crashes. There's not an, a, a, a causative uh, relationship between the crash and the level two plus system, whatever they're calling it. They are autopilot, full self-driving. Um, it's actually all crashes involving Tesla's where that tech where that tech was turned on. So it's you know I think the harder numbers are going to be determined by some of the NHTSA special investigation teams that have gone to all these Tesla crashes and have now been holding on to their reports for six years or so um instead of releasing them publicly that's where the real the the real data will come from where, where you'll actually be able to see you know what this crash the autopilot did not recognize X, Y, and Z and, um, you know, ran into a highway barrier, that type of thing. Um, here, the, the standing general order just reports crashes that occur while I autopilot was on. And, and in fact, the reporting is is bad from Tesla because they're withholding information like whether autopilot and full self-driving were you know which one was being used they're withholding the crash narrative which is critical to understanding what happened i mean if autopilot is on and you know a car flies off of a overpass above it and lands on the tesla it's obviously not the tesla's fault yet that crash would still be reported in this data so i just want to you know put that out as a word of caution when you're reading some of these statistics um that it, it, there's not a direct correlation there, but there's you know a lot of smoke, and where there's smoke, we know what's going on. Canada's on fire. That's what's going on. Uh, so we talk a lot about recalls in this show, and we have a good article from the. I'm not even going to try and pronounce the name of this newspaper, but the links in the description. Uh, and it basically talks about how uh, regulations are better than recalls. For vehicles, because we always talk about, oh, they, you know, NHTSA, they re- recalled a million vehicles, but only six, six people were injured. That's a ridiculous thing where people don't realize that, you know, it's to prevent future things. But, hey, if there were actual regulations in place, auto manufacturers would design to that. So this article talks about the tragic death of the Star Trek actor who died in uh, 2015 when his Jeep. Uh, Grand Cherokee rolled backwards on his driveway and pinned him against a brick fence. Uh, but Michael, what? So, uh, this, I mean, this, this, uh, it's an editorial. It's Norma uh, Hubel, who is uh, actually also known as the auto professor. I believe she works at, uh, I think it's Arizona State. And she also, importantly, and this is something I think all of our listeners should check out. 
if they go to the autoprofessor.com, she goes back and her team go back and they look at NHTSA crash data and you can go to her site and pick out your make, model, and year or a car you might be shopping for and look up, you know, some of the actual, some of the actual things that happen or you get actual ratings because they're based on crash data. And the cool thing about it is you can also select your age and gender to see how the vehicle that you're looking at performed based on your own age or gender. So that's a really cool feature. And I would, you know, I would tell consumers that's someplace else they should go when they're going to, you know, uh, uh, NHTSA or Insurance Institute or Consumer Reports for ratings. You know, it might it, it might be a good thing also to check out uh, Norma's site and, and see how that matches up. But she's absolutely correct about um the problem with recalls and we, we talk about recalls all the time we love recalls because they get dangerous cars off the road but what we don't love about recalls is that they're a a, a retrospective action they occur after these things have started to happen after people have been killed or injured and you know we think there should be standards put in place before those things happen and and a, a recent example would be something like Teslas are having phantom braking problems and they're stopping. And, you know, we saw a crash in the Bay area recently that involved this, this Tesla thinking it sees something stopping in the middle of the road and then causing a crash. Um, that is, you know, something that we think could be ameliorated or fixed or corrected or made better by regulations from NHTSA before Tesla puts this vehicle out on the road. Um, you know, software standards and automatic emergency braking standards and sensor standards, all of those things could combine to, to make sure that phantom braking incidents happen, you know, a, a lot less than they appear to be happening in the vehicle population right now. We've been seeing them for years in Nissans and Toyotas and now in a lot of other vehicles. So we'll probably see more of that over the years as automatic emergency braking develops, as pedestrian automatic emergency braking develops. But in a nutshell, if you can get those standards in place and manufacturers have to follow them at the time of manufacture and eliminate issues like that, then you don't have to come back and do recalls after people have been injured or killed. Um, which is, is in a very important point, particularly when we're looking at, um, autonomous vehicles and NHTSA and the DOT have continued to maintain for about seven years now that they're going to be conducting a lot of their safety efforts in this area through recalls, which seeing how slowly they've responded to Tesla and seeing how slowly they've responded to a number of other complex issues and technical issues doesn't give me a lot of hope that the recall, uh, the recall and investigative process is going to be able to address, you know, rapidly developing issues in autonomous vehicles that involve highly complex software and things that you can't just see. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's, Basically, uh, a, a, in a nutshell, I think what what Norma's article speaks to, and it's it's essentially a call to you know for more action by the DOT and by NHTSA to to prevent this you know the recall system from being the only protector of the American public. What lies behind this is and and essentially underwrites the current process is that all of these are engineered products. And engineered products uh, need to be developed, right? They don't just grow on trees. 
the system engineering is a part of any engineering development process. And in system engineering, the fundamental thing that you do when you develop an engineered product is to come up with a set of requirements. If you do not have a set of requirements that specify a certain behavior, that behavior is only going to end up accidentally in the product. So what that means is unless you've got specific requirements that say certain things have to happen, the phantom braking cannot occur, that the car cannot turn into a a vulnerable road user, any number of other things. Anything that is not required uh, can only happen by accident. Now, the, the other side of this is that if you find after the engineering development is complete that you need a certain behavior or a certain aspect of the design that's not included, it is very, very expensive to go back and do that. So that's that's the downside for the manufacturers of relying upon recalls at NHTSA to determine what their design requirements should be. Very, very expensive to implement at that time. And in fact, what we've seen is that the companies come back and say, well, hell, I can't do that. It's too expensive. I can't I can't change all these airbag inflators. It's too expensive. I can't change all of these brittle bolts that are holding my uh, rear axle in place. It's just too expensive to do that. If they had instead put in those requirements at the beginning of their development, it wouldn't be an issue. It would never have to be corrected. It would never have to be corrected as part of a recall because that recall would not happen. So I'm I'm with Michael on this, and I and I want to point out to our listeners that any such problems are generally a defect in the system engineering process by the company that's building the product. People know how to do this. People know how to do system engineering. Uh, the marketing and the financial people get involved in this, and. You know, you've got to give Elon Musk credit for knowing how to finance things that are going to be engineering developments. He does that probably better than anybody else. But it's not the job of people who are in finance to determine what the requirements for the engineering development have to be based upon the safety of the resultant product. There's got to be a different process. And this is the only group, the only organization that's in a position to put those requirements in place for safety that may not be in the best financial interest of a company, but that are in the best interest of public safety. NITS is the one, and they've got to step up to it. And right now, their position is that they're just going to wait for something to happen and then try to put a fix in after the fact. It's not good for people. It's not good for the companies. Listen, Fred, as somebody who works in the finance department, okay, this $1 piece that you're telling me that is required for engineering will save lives. But if you're buying a Ford Pinto, you can't really afford to spend that extra dollar. Sure, not everybody's going to make it. But hey, you'll have that extra dollar in your pocket. I had a Pinto. I lived to tell the tale. Mm, Did you? I did so far. (laughs) Speaking of proposed rules, and this is a good thing, uh, NHTSA and some other alphabet soup of an acronym of a federal group, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, uh, announced, uh, oh, man. Announced a notice of proposed rulemaking, and that also has an acronym, the NPRM. So let's do this. NHTSA, FMCSA, NPRM. I feel like I'm doing a routine from like Robin Williams and Good Morning Vietnam. Use your words, Anthony. Use your words. They're not using words. They're just like, hey, let's let's take a bunch of uh, complex words, jam them together, and then throw out the words. 
So anyway, long story short, there's a proposed rule to, that heavy trucks have to have automatic emergency braking. This is a good thing. Yes, it's it's definitely a good thing. Um, you know, we we actually petitioned for this action in 2015, so eight years ago. Um, and that you know that was we were petitioning you know at a time when the technology wasn't advanced as it is now. Um, and this is obviously take you know they take a long time on rulemakings, particularly ones of this magnitude, and particularly when they've got the trucking industry barking down their neck all the time, telling them that this stuff is too expensive and it's going to destroy their industry, which is you know rarely true. Um, <laughs> the rule is the rule is good. It's it you know it 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 protects up to about fifty miles per hour, which is I I think one of our are my personal big big problems with it because you know a lot of the catastrophic crashes that we hear about um occur at speeds above that you know for instance the uh one that injured tracy morgan killed his friend and fellow comedian and severely injured a couple other people when a walmart truck hit them in their sprinter van i believe sprinter limo at about 65 miles per hour um, you know, nothing would change uh, in that crash under under this rule. So, I, given the number of vehicles that are traveling our interstates at speeds at high speeds, a number of heavy trucks, it's you know, it's it's great that they're protecting at fifty miles per hour. They've had a long time to get at this point, and this isn't even going to be in effect until twenty twenty nine, probably at the earliest. Why? And why so long? Wait another two decades to get it to actual highway speeds. The the process is just far too slow, and it's because you know the the industry doesn't place any value on it because you know it costs them a little money, and they're unable to see the great benefit in protecting the public. Look, again, as a representative of the finance department, you're asking us to spend a dollar fifteen that the marketing campaign department can't figure out how to sell to make us a dollar sixteen on it. So look, not everyone's gonna survive. Speaking of not no I I've stumped uh, Michael. I don't know, I'm speechless for a moment. That's not that's unusual for me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this new, I don't like this new finance guy, Fred. I think we need to can him. <laughs> <laughs> you can't afford to can me. Uh, hey, Fred, how are you doing? I'm not bad for an older person. <laughs> okay, that's, that's good. So let's go into the, uh, the the Tao of Fred. You've now entered the Tao of Fred. All right, so we've got a few uh, spot quizzes for you today. Um, why do you typically rev up your engine before you start from a stop? I don't. You don't. I have. I just have bad pedal skills. Bad <laughs> yeah, pedal why, skills. Why would you, I hear the jackasses outside my window starting uh, at the racing point do that? I, but. I do know the answer to this. I just realized torque. Torque. Uh, well, uh, there's a couple dork. answers actually. Um, now, fundamentally, how much torque does your internal combustion engine generate at zero RPM? Zero. Zero torque. Torque. Zero torque, zero RPM. That's right. Good. You win a point, Michael. Now, I said much... zero torque, too. Come on. Yeah, but you were slow. You didn't oh, hit the buzzer in time. Oh, God damn it. Uh, <laughs> but, um, okay, so there's a difference with an electric motor. How much torque does an electric motor produce at zero Zero RPM? torque. Zero torque. And, Michael? At zero RPM, it's not moving, right? So, no. 
Zero. I would have to say zero there too. And okay. All the uh, torque. All the torque. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unless Peter your torque. Electric motor produces maximum torque at zero RPM, so that's a that's an interesting difference between the two, and that leads to a lot of uh, a lot of other considerations. Um, so your internal combustion engine produces no torque at zero RPM, so it has to be running in order for it to produce any torque, and it goes from uh, zero efficiency at idle because it's just idling, right? up to some other number where it gets maximum efficiency. Um, that is associated with what's called the torque peak. So the, the the peak torque of an internal combustion engine typically occurs at something like 2,500 to 3,000 RPM. If you, have a, if you have an engine that doesn't have any modifications for flattening the torque peak, it has a very narrow speed at which it can operate efficiently. So when you have a typical car, they want to have a flat torque peak because they want to be able to maneuver and increase the speed and do all the things they do over fairly wide range of speeds. But you still need a transmission because that range is like a factor of three. And if you compare that to the speed of the car over its entire operating range, it's a much wider operating range going from zero to X we'll say 70 miles an hour. Okay, so you, in order to have reasonable performance, you've got to be able to keep the car operating and an efficient speed range. So you've got to match the speed of the car to the speed of the wheels. Okay, um, I just want to point out for listeners that we didn't mention the, the subject of this week's Tower Fred, is why internal combustion engines need a transmission and electric vehicles don't. Nothing to do with Peter Torque or the monkeys. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, many of you have been in a diesel truck. And if you've ever seen even a movie of diesel truck, you know that they're shifting all the time, right? Right. The, the reason they're shifting all the time is because these trucks are built to have a very narrow torque peak because they run at uh, basically uh, most efficient speed for very long periods of time. So because of the way the engines are designed, there's a very narrow range of engine speeds that gives them the torque they need to actually go ahead and accelerate the engine. Um, that's why you have a lot of different speeds. You don't need that in the electric vehicle so much because it starts with maximum torque. And then what happens, it's interesting, it cannot uh, speed up to an infinite speed. As the electric motor builds up speed, you get something called a reverse EMF. Now, an electric motor is basically a coil of wire that is allowed to spin in a magnetic field. An electric generator is the same thing. Just it's a question of are you putting electricity in or you're taking electricity out. So you can see that there's a close relationship between a motor and a generator. What happens with a motor is that as it speeds, it actually becomes a generator and generates reverse voltage, or reverse EMF it's called, um, so that at maximum torque at zero speed, starts to peter out as you get up to higher and higher speeds. So this is just completely different than an internal combustion engine, which has a fairly flat torque peak, or maybe not a flat torque peak, but I'm gonna ask you a spot quiz here too. What's the relationship between torque and power? 
Oh, wait, you got to do that again. You you froze for a second. You said, what's the difference between torque and frozen? What is the relationship between torque and horsepower? All the torque. All the torque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. tor torque and horsepower. Uh, what's the relationship between them? Well, if you're, you know, you got a riding crop and you got those boots and those, what's called the jumpers. Michael, Michael, over to yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I have no idea on this one, Fred. I would say the 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 higher, I don't know, the higher the torque, the greater the horsepower. Yeah. Well, that's true. There's a linear relationship there. The basic relationship between torque and horsepower is that uh, torque times the RPM gives you the horsepower. So if you have a, let's say that you had an engine that has a very flat torque range, right? It goes, it has the same torque from zero to X RPM. Then the horsepower increases linearly as you go to a higher engine speed, right? Because the horsepower is the function of torque and the engine speed. So in a typical car though, your torque peak occurs at a much lower number than the maximum horsepower. So that's the reason why at cruise in a car, at efficient cruise, you're down at 2,500 RPM, something like that. So you never cruise at maximum horsepower. Because maximum horsepower occurs at some much higher number. Um, and I looked at, at one in particular, a, a V8 produced by Ford in their Mustang uh, Mustang something, what is it, Ford 2023 Mustang GT Fastback. It produces um, torque peak at 4,250 RPM, but the horsepower peak is 6,500 RPM. Now, it's interesting because the uh, horsepower to weight ratio of that vehicle is 241 horsepower to ton of vehicle. And I sort of looked at the container ship and a container ship has a ratio of about 0 0.5 to 1 of horsepower per ton. So there's a difference of, uh, what, 500 between those numbers? It's kind of sure. interesting. And so the reason for that is the third parameter that makes you, uh, makes you into a, an engine engineer, which is called the duty cycle. Now, the ship engine is heavier... Uh, by far than the engine in your vehicle because it has to run at its maximum or its you know cruise speed for years, 20 years, something like that. And that tends to be close to the maximum horsepower range too because it's got a very narrow torque peak designed to run very efficiently at a certain speed and not too efficiently at other speeds. Your car has uh, is designed to run at very high horsepower for maybe a couple of minutes during its entire lifetime. So the duty cycle is very different. Okay, I got to interrupt. What uh what's torque? Torque is torque is the uh amount of impact that is delivered to the drive system to turn the wheels. Okay, so so torque and horsepower is the rate at which that impact is delivered to the wheels so horsepower goes up the wheels will turn faster but 
the amount of stress that's in the system actually goes down because the torque is going down. So, this so it's, is why it's kind of complex. But this is why an electric vehicle, as soon as you press the accelerator, it's off like a rocket ship. Right, you can do that's zero correct. to 60 times. Okay, whereas an right. ice vehicle, you press down the accelerator and it's got to go through things. Got to, hey, let's start moving pistons. Let's burn off some fuel. Let's cause little explosions. Right, speed up the flywheel, store some energy in the flywheel, deliver that to the drive system. All those things, all those things have to happen. Okay, now I understand why they need a transmission because you want to shift through and find the right point that it operates efficiently at. That's right. Do you want to? Well, you want to balance that, or if you want to go like hell, then you know you shift so that you can always operate in the very high RPM range. Of course, if you're always operating at maximum horsepower, you're not going to do that for very long because the engine isn't built to sustain that. So that's kind of the uh, the real marketing bullshit that's involved in a lot of these <laughs> a lot of these ICEs. They say, well, we produce 600 horsepower, 700, 500, whatever, but they never tell you how long you can sustain that horsepower. And it's typically only a matter of seconds before you're going to burn up the engine. So that's so, 600 horsepower is like 600 horse shit because you got to clean that all up, right? It is. Well, we did talk about bull shift, bull shift. in the last Ooh. episode, I think. It's, so, uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, for the people listening, if you're buying a car based upon the horsepower, you might want to consider what is the horsepower that's really needed and how long can this horsepower be delivered? Um, if you've got a 500 horsepower car, and you're driving that around, you will probably never, ever in your entire life operate that at 500 horsepower. Because if you do, you're going to go like a rocket and you're going to be scared to death. So you you are probably going to operate at a much lower RPM, much lower horsepower, and uh, you will do that for a much longer period of time. So let's see. So if you go to a couple other things, if you go to a electric drive rather than an ICE, what are the parts that you no longer need in your vehicle? See, this is another side of the EVs. They're, they can be much less expensive to build. So Yeah, back seats. You don't need back seats anymore. Don't need back seats, maybe that. But I was thinking more along uh -huh. the drivetrain. So if you, have an, if you have an electric motor, you don't need... What's the first part you don't need? Oil. Starts with C. Coolant. Combustion. Nah, uh, combustion's a good one. Second <laughs> letter is L. Uh, clothesline. Sounds like the sound a, a, a hen would make. A Cluck? clucker. Oh, a clutch. Cl a clutch. A clutch. Hey, Anthony, you win. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> you will rob, Michael. Uh, you were great. You were great. Okay, <laughs> so you can get rid of the clutch. If you have a two-wheel drive uh Two-wheel drive electric vehicle. What's another part that you can get rid of? The mud tires. <laughs> <laughs> the well, truck nuts. I guess this is true for all electric vehicles. You no longer need a transmission because yeah. unless unless you've got a electric motor that's designed for only a very narrow operating speed, which you can do, but they don't ordinarily do that. Anyway, we talked about the reverse EMF. So you can, uh, you can, in fact, go ahead and ruin your car, your electric motor, by putting too much current in too quickly. So you, you need to balance that out. But another, another part that you can get if you get four-wheel drive on your vehicle with four independent electric motors, one on each tire, is uh, get rid of, you can get rid of the differential. 
Yeah, I was going to say uh, you can get rid of traction control, right? Yeah, it's what is the software? Why do you need a differential in a car, Michael? Oh, what transmit I energy from the uh, front to the back? Well, that's close, Anthony. What's your well, guess? Well, because you know, some people they they drive differently. Like in England, they drive on the <laughs> right side of the road, so it's, there's a differential. And that's when they, a good answer. When they that's bring a- the cars over on a cargo ship. They got they got to differentiate them. You know that reminds me of a uh, guy who answered a question in comparative vertebrate anatomy when I was in college. The question was, "Who is Andreas Vesalius?" And the answer the guy gave is, "It's a geometric or geological feature halfway between Mount Vesuvius and San Francisco," which was pretty good. <laughs> I like it. He got full credit for the answer, even though it was wrong. No, differential is something you need in a car because when you go around a corner the wheels turn at different speeds, all right? Because the inside radius is different than the outside radius. Playing with physics again, aren't you? Hmm. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm inclined <laughs> to do that. This is actually geometry. Uh, when did you depart from the technical world, Anthony? Uh, never mind. Um, I was thinking, come on, what's the, the, the centripetal force? There we go. That's So I'm, I'm only trying to point out that as, <laughs> as you get deeper and deeper into the electric conversion of vehicles, there are many, many parts that are quite expensive and hard to build that you can leave out of the vehicle. So this is another reason why people want to go to electric vehicles. They can reduce the manufacturing cost and increase their profit margins associated with these once they get past the hurdle of these damn batteries that are so expensive. So that's that's another initiative for them. So I think maybe I've belabored this issue enough. Um, Anything that we've left unclear here? Why can't they? Oh, one more thing. Why can't they use a boat motor in the Ford Mustang GT? Because if you have a 500 horsepower, you can get a 500 horsepower uh, boat engine that you can generate the same amount of power as the Ford uh, Mustang engine. So the difference is that the 500 horsepower boat engine weighs as much as the whole Mustang. Right. So this would make the Mustang. Um, a lot heavier. And so the question is, and you should know the answer to this now based upon the clues I've given you, why is the engine built for nautical duty in a ship so much heavier than the engine in a Mustang that produces the same amount of horsepower? It's got to operate for a longer period of time at a consistent rate. And also boat engines are diesel because they don't use combustion because it's less of a fire hazard. Anthony, Bonus you, points. Get, you get a gold star, Anthony. Yes! You get a gold star. I knew it. All right. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our understanding of why an ICE vehicle needs a transmission and EVs don't. It'll all be better in the future when batteries are lighter, cheaper, and we all smell better. I think it's time for a little recall roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. Ah, uh, listeners, this is the first week we're inserting these little sound effects directly into the show and it's making me giggle. All right, let's go into the first recall. We have another rear view camera problem. This is for Honda. It affects potentially 1.198 million vehicles. Honda is recalling certain 2018 to 2023 Odyssey, 2019 to 2022 pilots, 2019 to 23 passport vehicles due to a faulty media-oriented systems transport, which, of course, they give an acronym for most. Uh, basically, the coaxial cable to the rear-view camera will disconnect, it looks like, or basically 
they can't get rear view cameras to work. I don't know why. Michael, you're muted. I told him he's muted. He's still muted. There you go. Yeah, this was basically there was a cable that uh, connects the. Um, it's a media oriented cable, is what it's called. The most cable, it's just which makes me wonder cable. if it's if it's also combining non safety features in there that that that. Ha but we don't know enough about it to determine that one way or the other. But this is a lot of uh, I think the larger Honda vehicles. I think it's the. Um, minivan the passport and the pilot so suvs and minivans and basically your rear view camera image isn't appearing on your display when you're backing up um and it looks like it's caused by a heart a cable that got kinked so what they're going to do is put in a new cable and install a straightening cover to keep it from kinking apparently but this follows just dozens of rear view camera recalls that we've seen the last couple of years, which appears to be a, it appears to be a problem in the industry. They're having trouble getting these things uh, up to code for FMVSS 111. Hmm. Uh, there was another oh, recall. I think sure. that I didn't put in there, Anthony, the um, Ford came out this morning with a um, do not charge warning. And oh. it's for, let's see. 2019 to 20 fusion um hybrid i think they're plug-in hybrids so obviously they're plug-in hybrids if you're not <laughs> supposed to charge it right um and this is a battery engine control module that's damaged due to excessive voltage and current flow um we were just talking so that's about that important. we'll be NHTSA should be highlighting that on their website um later today and the owners are going to be getting their letters probably in the next three weeks, it looks like. So they're coming out pretty quick with a remedy on this one. Hmm. Uh, but Ford, uh, NHTSA is investigating whether Ford botched their runaway uh, Explorer recall. So we got a lot of a lot of Ford issues happening here. Uh, and it looks like so the automaker announced a recall of almost 253,000 Explorers in April, uh, last April. Uh, because of a rear axle mounting bolt uh, could fracture. And so the recall involved a software update, which, which you know, oh, hey, a bolt's broken. Let's apply some software to fix it. And yeah, it's uh, weird. <laughs> Not only that, it's the they they actually did a fix on police vehicles, but consumers were given the software update. So um, similar to what happened, I mean, probably 10 years ago when the crown victorias were being hit in the rear and exploding the police vehicles received an upgrade and the consumer vehicles did not um so which is great i mean i i, I you know the police vehicles may they, they do have more heavy duty parts and they do way more um so there you know there may be something to that but in this case I don't know. It looks like Ford's trying to get away with a free call. And if you've been following us, that's when there is a physical problem with the vehicle that they're trying to put a Band-Aid on with a software update. Um, that looks like what they did here. And now owners are coming back and complaining that it's not working or that it's causing other problems. Um, and so NHTSA is going to go back and take a look at Ford's actions here and at the, at the defect and see what's going on. So Ford seems to have a lot of both issues. So you mentioned the one about the police as well, but they also have another parking one. 
And it looks like it's related to the primary control module software, but it's also that the rear axle bolt will break and the drive shaft can become disconnected, resulting in loss of transmission torque to the real wheels, which is necessary to hold the vehicle in park. Look at this. It's uh, 674 vehicles. They are the 2020 Ford Explorers, affected uh, vehicles, a whole bunch of blah, blah, blah uh, on there. I'm not going to read through all of that. Uh, but hey, look, we're learning the word torque today. We're learning about bolts. Apparently software can fix bolts. Uh, so it all... Am I reading all this stuff wrong, Michael? It seems like it's all these rear axle bolts. Do they just get a bad batch of these things? You know, I don't know. I, I, it looks like they're recalling more vehicles than that, at least uh, in, in the in the major recall. There's seven hundred thousand, so that's a that's a really large bad batch. If so, I mean, I imagine they buy these in bulk. But I mean, so that's what we have for. Uh, recalls this week and before we end this is i think this is touches on something that we've discussed before how about touch screens are awful 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 uh we've got a couple of good articles about how people are really disappointed with their new cars and it's not because of performance or anything like that it's because the cup holders suck and it's because no one can navigate their cars because everything's got touchscreen buttons including um We'll link to this article in thedrive.com where even the CEO of VW admits that their ID4 vehicles are annoying. Not because the interior designs, but the, the physical design is bad. It's because of the ergonomics of where everything's located and how do you turn this on and that on. And it's uh, it's like the Tesla problem where you scroll through eight screens to find how to turn the car, put the car in park. Uh, so hopefully they start working on better uh, ergonomics and actually a physical button. Yeah, it's, it's, it looks like... People are really not happy. People have been complaining about touchscreens for the last few years at pretty high rates. I mean, they're they're burdensome. You can't get to things that you once got to pretty easily when buttons were popular. Um, and VW basically said, we screwed up. We're going back to buttons from screens because our customers hate it. Um, and I think we all pretty clearly see that it's a cost cutting measure to, you know, get everything centralized and not have multiple buttons running across the dashboard. But, you know, consumers like that. I, I like buttons that do what they say when I touch them. And I do not want to scroll through any screens while I'm driving or when I'm not driving. I just want a button. Yeah. I like the nice lag I get with the touchscreen where I press something. And I'm like, did it register? You wait so you, a little spinning so bar with press the, it. Yeah. I don't even get a spinning bar. It just doesn't respond. So I press it again and then again and then again. And then I realize, oh, I didn't even turn the car on. Initiating braking sequence. <laughs> right. Hey, do we have time for an engineering nerd aside? You know, for yeah. you all the time in the world. All right. Thanks, so listeners. We were... Goodbye. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were talking about bad bolts before in the Ford. And, um, there was an article I read once by a an engineer who had analyzed the Titanic sinking. And what she came up with was that there was a manufacturing defect in the Titanic because at the time it was built, there was a shortage of steel rivets. And so the company used cast iron rivets instead of steel rivets in the, in the Titanic. Now, the difference between those basically is that engineering term we talked about a couple of weeks ago called ductility, right? And ductility means basically that if it's ductile, it's not brittle. So it, it can stretch, it can move, and it won't break. Cast iron is very brittle. 
has right. very little ductility. So this uh, this engineer posited that because of the shortage of steel rivets at that time, they used cast iron rivets in the Titanic. And so when it hit the iceberg, uh, because the rivets were inherently brittle, made of cast iron, and because it was cold, which made them even more brittle, uh, the whole seam popped open rather than just the impact point, which caused the excess of uh, water intake that couldn't be pumped out, which led to the Titanic sinking. Anyway, it just popped into my head. I thought I'd throw that in there. It's not relevant, but I do think it's interesting. Well, as a representative of the finance department, I'd like to point out we You're did five. the math on this. <laughs> we did the math on this, and we didn't think there was any chance of somebody driving into an iceberg. But that's it for now. Thank well, you so that, much, listeners. That hardly ever happens. You're right. <laughs> You're right. Thanks, everybody. All right. Next week, we have off, but there'll be a compilation episode of all of our Consumer AV Bill of Rights. Download it. Share with your friends over the holiday break. Dave Bohr, I think we need more acronyms. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org. You can talk now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, fine. Now that we're not recording, you're going to let me talk. This is a heresy. (laughs) No, we're still recording. This is is how the show ends. Uh Uh-oh. I'm in trouble. (laughs)